There are over 4 billion people using email. Many people use email for business communications or quick questions to colleagues, and they're sending repetitive, template-based information to potential customers and freshly hired employees. They're repeating lots of the same phrases. We actually repeat phrases in a lot of written formats. How often do you copy and paste the same thing to multiple people? The company TextBlaze is making the workday a little faster, more productive, and more convenient with their shortcut to snippet software product. With TextBlaze, you can save any snippet or text or template, including templates that need fill-in-the-blank sections to keyboard shortcuts. And then you type that keyboard shortcut into Gmail or Google Docs or LinkedIn or Salesforce or wherever else you need to use your saved snippet. In this episode, we talked to Scott Foreman-Rowe, who is the CTO at TextBlaze. I hope you enjoy this very interesting episode about browser extensions and text snippets and how to be more productive. Scott is a very experienced engineer, and I think you're going to enjoy this episode. Our first book is coming soon. Move Fast is a book about how Facebook builds software. It comes out July 6th, and it's something we're pretty proud of. We've spent about two and a half years on this book, and it's been a great exploration of how one of the most successful companies in the world builds software. In the process of writing Move Fast, I was reinforced with regard to the idea that I want to build a software company. And I have a new idea that I'm starting to build. The difference between this company and the previous software companies that I've started is I need to let go of some of the responsibilities of software engineering daily. We're going to be starting to transition to having more voices on software engineering daily. And in the long run, I think this will be much better for the business because we'll have a deeper, more diverse voice about what the world of software entails. If you are interested in becoming a host, please email me, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. This is a paid opportunity, and it's also a great opportunity for learning and access and growing your personal brand. Speaking of personal brand, we are starting a YouTube channel as well. We'll start to air choice interviews that we've done in person at a studio, and these are high-quality videos that we're going to be uploading to YouTube, and you can subscribe to those videos at YouTube and find the Software Daily YouTube channel. Thank you for listening. Thank you for reading. I hope you check out Move Fast. And very soon, thanks for watching Software Daily. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jeff. You have built a very interesting company, and I want to get into what the company is. But first, I want to talk about Chrome extensions, because Chrome extensions have always seemed like an amazing platform with lots of potential. But the problem is that Nobody wants to install Chrome extensions, right? Isn't it really hard to build a business around a Chrome extension? I wouldn't say that. So Chrome, of course, is a huge platform. There's, I think, over a billion users on Chrome who use Chrome. So it's a huge platform with a lot of potential users and, and a massive market. The platform is very powerful. There's a lot you can do with it. There are some concerns about security and privacy in various cases. There's been well-publicized cases where spammers or scammers have created Chrome extensions that are either adware or redirect your search page or things like that. The Chrome team over, I'd say, the past two years has really been trying to crack down on that. 
So they've developed a number of new policies, technologies, review processes to really try to address that problem. So for example, when I started TextBlaze two years ago, you submit your extension to the Chrome Web Store, 15 minutes later it's published. Now you submit to the Chrome Web Store and either an hour later or up to three weeks later it's published because they've added much more review processes where they'll actually sometimes go manually review, make sure it's legitimate and confirm all that before publishing it. So they're taking it very seriously, which has some impact on development as an engineer because when your review process might take three weeks, that obviously impacts how you can develop and sort of your release cadence, but it's good to increase the trust of the platform. So what is the process of getting a Chrome extension accepted by the store these days? How similar is it to the onerous process of getting your mobile app accepted? I've never done a mobile app, but my understanding is they are converging. So again, two years ago, you just write some code, submit it, they run some automated checks, and 15 minutes later, it's good to go. But now, again, it just takes a lot more work because it could be a fast review and it could be up in an hour, but it could be something that takes three weeks. And if you know the review might take three weeks, that obviously puts certain constraints on development. Namely, you need to make sure when you push code, there are no bugs, right? It's good code. Because if you push out a bug and it's a critical bug, it could take three weeks to get that fixed, right? Because it could take three weeks for your next release to get through the review process. So you really got to do a lot of testing, quality assurance, make sure it works great. We do a lot of automated sort of CICD testing where we use Docker images where we have different Chrome builds. So we have the, the current Chrome version, but we also have up to six older versions because some of our users are on the long tail and, and don't update that much. And we run through a large number of Selenium tests where we actually spin up the Chrome instance in Docker. We install the extension. We run it on a whole bunch of sites. So I don't want to know if we want to get in text plays, but uh, what it is. But for us, the key thing is compatibility with different types of editors because we, we influence editors in web browsers. So we have this very extensive test suite that tests all the popular editor platforms, so like CK Editor, TinyMCE, Quill, just any sort of editor that for Frolla, any sort of editors out there, we have tests to make sure our extension works correctly with it. And then also a whole bunch of different websites. So like Facebook, Google Docs, Gmail, etc. So we just run through, whenever we do a release, we test all those different sites across up to six different Chrome versions and make sure the extension works correctly across them. The product is... Not super easy to explain. So I'd like to take a few cracks at what TextBlaze actually does. So Please do. This is a constant issue in our marketing. <laughs> right. So, okay, a good example is I'm a support agent. I basically am doing like some set of tasks like over and over again every single day with some variability. So if I'm, for example, working as an Amazon support agent and I'm managing returns, for example. This is a pretty straightforward example. You know, you go into the Amazon chat system, you say, hey, I need to return, you know, order identification number 56329, right? And the support agent says something that is basically a canned response, like, okay, I understand you need to return this item, and let me get that started for you. Let me kick off the returns process. If I was a support agent, I would be typing that command 500 times a day. But with TextBlaze, I could just type slash return, like the word return, the string return, and use TextBlaze to expand that 
into a response, into a commonly used response. Have I explained that correctly? Exactly. So the basic idea, right, is you create templates, you give those templates shortcuts, and then anywhere on the web, any text box on the web, where you type that shortcut, the template's inserted. So in your example, your, your template is, here's how to return it, or your return is approved, and your shortcut is slash return. And then in your intercom or, or Zendesk or your internal company's chat system, you type slash return, and that message gets inserted right away. So that's the basic idea of the product. So the basic idea is kind of pretty simple, right? Like, it's not rock science. Templates have been around forever. There are other competitors to us out there that do things like this. Templates are built into every serious product already, right? Your Gmail has templates, your Salesforce has templates, etc. But we take that sort of simple concept of, hey, just a template and a shortcut to save that automated, save, save that repetitive typing. And we, we take it a lot farther than we think anyone has ever really done before, which is sort of why we think it's really exciting. So before I get to like the, like the band stuff, I sort of like to geek out on the van stuff, like formulas and programming and all that cool stuff. But like really from a user standpoint, just that basic template shortcut is incredibly valuable. Like you have the people who are doing the same thing over and over again, and it just saves so much time and reduces mistakes too. So instead of typing that out and potentially make a mistake or copying and paste it, it just does it and it does it fast. It does it seamlessly again, wherever they are. So it's just hugely valuable for people who have the repetitive tasks. I want to make it like clear, like this is not automating anything. This is not like replacing the agent. This is not like you're talking with a chat bot somewhere who has sort of programming. And, and like, we all sort of hate that. Like when we're talking with a robot, this is still the humans in the loop, the humans evaluating the customer messaging and deciding, Hey, how am I going to handle this? And they can always jump out of their script if it's not working and the customer has unique issues. I mean, let's, let's get to sort of the advanced stuff, if that's okay. Can, can we get to sort of the advanced stuff? Yeah, please, please. Okay, awesome. So you start with just that basic text template, right? That customer return message. Then we have uh, more advanced feature the user can use in the template. So one is forms. And forms basically allows the user to embed form fields, like text boxes or drop-down menus or check boxes in the templates. So when they have that template about return, they might say, Hi, Jeff, we've approved your return. It will arrive in 10 days. Now, in the template, they might say, like, hi, XXX. That's something we do sometimes when we create templates, like XXX. Then we have to remember, go and replace the XXX with the person's name. Maybe they forget, they send it, it's embarrassing. It's no good. What forms do, you can do hi form text or hi text box. And now when you use the snippet, a little window will pop up. And there'll be a little text box right where that name was, and you can enter Jeff, or you can enter Scott, or whoever you're talking to. So it creates this little form you can fill out when you use a snippet. So that's step one. That's super useful when sort of making these snippets a little dynamic, sort of standardizing processes where you want users to enter information as they use the templates, etc. So forms. So step one. Sorry, any questions about that? Is that super clear? No, keep going. Okay, so you take forms. And then another thing we've done we've added formulas. So like in Excel where you have your little grid and you create a formula that references cells and do math or other logic, we get the same thing in text base. So we have a called command. So there's the form text command for a little text box. There's the form menu command for a drop-down menu. And then there's the equals command, just a little equal sign where you can write a arbitrary sort of mathematical formula. So you could do something simple like one plus one, right? And then when you use the snippet, instead of inserting one plus one there, it would insert two and it would do that math for you. Now that's not super useful by itself. Where it gets powerful is it can connect 
the form fields to the formulas. So for example, if you had a, we'll move away from the return example, if you had some sort of invoice snippet or, or some sort of sending out a quote snippet or receipt, you could have a price form field that you could enter the price of the product, $100. Then you could have a formula that referenced that price field. So you could have for price, fill in $100, and then you could have price of tax where the formula is the price times 1.1 or 1.2 for a 10% or 20% tax. So now you've created this dynamic where when you open up little box shows and you can enter the price $100 and the price of tax will spit out 110 or in real time as you edit. So you get all this is updating live. So this lets you start to embed really dynamic logic in the snippet where you have the form fields and then you have this dynamic logic that based on what you enter. So you can start to embed your business logic in the snippet. You can take that and you can extend it further. We have uh, sort of like if commands. So that's sort of like a formula, but it will conditionally hide in show text. So you could say, hey, if the price is above $100, offer free shipping. If it's less than $100, don't offer free shipping. And you can code that directly in the snippet and it will be fully dynamic as the user edited it. So anyways, we start with plain text and we really want to do plain text well, but then we have these ways to extend text blaze beyond it to create these really interactive documents where you can embed business law. In some way they're like almost apps, but like documents that are dynamic and respond to the user input. Anyway, so that's sort of, again, start simple text, but offer the progression path. Convince me that this is not a narrow tool for super users of, you know, niche web automation tools. Okay, so I would say two things on that. So, well, first, we have about 80,000 weekly actives on, on the Chrome Web Store, so we're, and it's growing steadily, so we're getting great engagement there. But in terms of sort of like how I think about the product and how we think about our I'd say two things. One, I look at two sort of analogs that I think are super, super interesting. One is Excel. Excel is, or Lotus or Google Sheets, right? It's like one of the most successful sort of programming, computing, paradigm ever, right? Like it's incredible, this sort of simple table, right? It's incredibly powerful. And I think it's that way because of two things. One, it's super simple to start using, right? Like your grandmother can use Google Sheets to make her Christmas shopping list, right? And it works great for that. It's awesome. Just like a static list. Maybe she does some coloring. Maybe she adds something, maybe, but like just a static list is amazing. But then it offers formulas, right? Where you can now make things dynamic. And then Beyond that, it offers VBScript or AppScript, and then like you're running your business on it and you're doing these incredibly powerful things. So first we wanna sort of do what Excel is doing, but for documents, right? Where text plays start super simple. It's just plain text. Anyone can adopt it, anyone can use it. We have users across every vertical. So customer success, customer support, which, which you mentioned, that's our main one. But we have users in property management and healthcare and teaching doctors. Like so many different type of people have value in this type of software. I think the three most interesting vertical users, in my opinion, we had one who was reached out to me who was a sushi chef. We had one who was a priest and then one who was a tarot card reader. And she used text plays to speed up her creation of her daily fortunes every day. So the use cases are sort of very, very wide. But anyways, back to sort of the Excel analogy. 
you start really simple with text-based. Like, you don't need any of this dynamic stuff. Like it just works for plain text and it's super simple and it solves that email. Like you probably reach out to many different people at your podcast scheduling. Like you can make a, a text-based template for that, send it off super easily. But then it offers the formulas, it offers the dynamic behavior, offers the ability to integrate with other apps easily. So it allows you to over time do more and more of your sort of business logic, especially for your company, in text places. And we're seeing that in text places. We're seeing people start out very simple, and then we're seeing some companies evolve and use more and more complex functionality. Not all companies, some just keep very simple and sort of figuring out how to educate people over time is a key challenge for our company, but we're seeing that growth patterns happen. So that's sort of one point in my mind. Any questions about that? Otherwise, I'll move on to the second one. You know, I'd like to zoom in on on one particular use case to help make sure that people are, are not losing the lead here. We already kind of ran through the support agent example in some detail, but another one of your testimonials on your website is from a therapist. So I can imagine a therapist in a remote therapy session taking notes on a patient. Why would text blaze be useful for that use case? Sure, absolutely. So we actually see a fair amount of adoption in the medical space or a fair amount of interest in it. And it's just healthcare professionals, they have a lot of sort of structured input where they have various questions after a consultation or a meeting and either freeform questions or with various potential answers. And TextBlades has those like text boxes, it has the drop-down menus that makes it easy to implement and structure those sort of questionnaires. Additionally, with the dynamic logic of TextBlades, you can implement sort of smart follow-up questions. So if, if you ask, hey, are you a smoker? Yes or no? And they say yes, you can offer a follow-up question about their smoking habits. And if they say no, you can hide that question and that, that question doesn't show up. So we actually have one doctor particularly in my mind out in Australia who has these super complex sort of diagnostic templates where he go through, he asks a whole bunch of questions and reveals, hides additional questions as the top ones are filled out. And finally, it spits out a answer, a recommendation, hey, you need to come in for a checkup or, or whatever the case may be. So anyway, TextPlay sort of has that ability where they can implement sort of whatever they want because it's just, it's just a text document at the end of the day. They can lay out things, style things how they want, but then they can embed the form fields. And if they want, they can also embed a, a bit of dynamic logic for follow-up questions or additional sort of behavior. Okay, I get it. At this point, I think the listeners probably get it. This is a dynamic tool for making templated and advanced workflows around typing plain text on the internet. Sorry, it's also style text. We also, of course, have style. Oh, sorry. I just, I just sorry. want to mention that. Style I text as well. <laughs> Very big domain. Tell me about the engineering. Like, let's start with just the level one engineering. Sure, absolutely. So, uh, not from a terminal level one. Uh, okay, just give me the high level engineering. Like, yeah, and then we can dive down in a little more detail. Right. So TextBlaze, and I think many products are like this. TextBlaze is one of the products where you look at that and you're like, hey, I could create that in a weekend or two weekends max, right? Like, and, and they're like, like as engineers, we, we all have a bad habit of both doing this and critiquing it, right? Like we look at Facebook, like, oh yeah, Facebook, I, I, no, no problem. It's easy to make. And we all know at the end of the day how ridiculous it is, but like still easy to do, right? And TextBlaze, right, you're looking, okay, like you have some text templates, okay, you insert them into the page. Okay, yeah, maybe there's some sharing and collaboration, but that's not too hard to do. But there's actually 
a lot that goes under the hood of TextBlaze. And I guess there's some things I'll sort of like talk about on the engineering side that might be interesting and might be sort of unexpected. So the first thing that is pretty surprising is how hard it is to insert text into a web page. You would never think this is one of the hardest part of TextBlaze, but just the act of, hey, I have a template, the user typed the shortcut. Now let's get rid of that shortcut and put the template text into the page. That actually is quite, quite difficult. And basically why it is, is the web is full of so many different types of text editors, so many different approaches to text editors. On the simple level, the, the easy level, you have form elements like the text area tag or the input tag and experience. Those are relatively simple to do because generally you, you don't have too much dynamic behavior or event listeners operating on them. Like you have to fire off on change event when you insert text and maybe do some other things, but it's pretty straightforward. But then once you get to style text, so style text, right, the way to do it on the, I'm not sure how technical, but like, let me know if this is too basic or, or too advanced. Just No, it's, it's a show for engineers, so go for it. Right, so the way to do it, and I'm sure many of you listeners know this, right, is you have this content editable tech, where you just stick the content editable attribute on any HTML element, and then the text within it will be editable by the browser. So that's how basically every, or almost every, we can talk about some exceptions, but almost every rich text editor works on the web. You have a div, content editable, and then the text inside it is editable HTML. So... That's the basis for, again, almost every edit, a rich text editor, but there's so many variants to how they behave. So 10 years ago, 15 years ago, this was simple. You had sort of old school editors like Tiny MCE 3 or older version of CK Editor, and basically they, they would just mark an area as content editable. They would add some buttons to make things bold or add links or et cetera, and the user would just edit the text and they'd be editing HTML as they do it. And then when the parent app wanted to get the page, they'll just contact it, grab the HTML, they would sanitize it and save it somewhere in a database. So for those types of editors, inserting text is straightforward. You can just edit the DOM, you can just stick in your new text, add a new span, put in the new text, and it's updated and it works. However, again, that's 10 years ago, maybe five years ago or somewhere and then, a lot of that started to change. You had sort of newer editors, fancier editors, and they wouldn't just trust the DOM. They wouldn't say, hey, whatever's in the DOM, that's my text. They would keep their own internal state representation. So you have editors like Quill, where Quill has its own internal format. It's called the Delta format. And that is the representation of the document for Quill. Now they have the, the mirror that out to the page, but the master is this internal representation. So if you just go edit the uh, DOM and add text or remove text, it's going to, the DOM and the internal representation will not match, and the editor may crash, it may behave badly, it may copy stuff, delete stuff, it won't work well. So with these newer editors, you can't just go in and edit the DOM. You can't take that easy approach. You have to be more sophisticated. So there's that branch, and then even a little later, there's a whole set of new editors, the before input event, the input event, these newer technologies that are coming out, and they work similar, they have their own state, but they use a whole set of different events of how they track things. So how you work with those new editors, you actually have to emulate exactly what would happen if a user inserted text. So a lot of the text-based insertion is carefully emulating what would happen, again, if a real browser user came in and stuck some text in the page, firing off the exact sequence of events the browser expects, and again, just doing that as closely as possible. So whatever the editor, they see the text inserted just as if the user had typed that text themselves. So a ton of work has gone into that. 
So that, that's one thing. So I want to mention that I said there were some editors that don't follow this. So there's a few, and I just maybe highlight one if you think it might be interesting. Yeah, go ahead. So Google Docs, right? I'm sure everyone uses Google Docs at some point in time. When you go to edit a Google document, you have this big canvas, you can edit things. And when I say canvas, I don't mean a HTML canvas, I just mean an area where you can edit things. And you might think that's one big content editable. That would be the standard way to implement it. However, Google Docs actually does something very different. In Google Docs, what you're editing or what you think you're editing, you're not editing that at all. That is just a picture, basically. It's a DOM structure, but it's static. What you're actually editing in Google Docs is directing your keystrokes and everything you type towards an off-screen iframe, which is a completely empty iframe. There's nothing in it, except it's instrumented to listen to your keystrokes and carefully, exactly as you type them, listen to them, and then use those keystrokes to update their document model of how they structure your document. So in, in Google Docs, when, when you're editing this, they're like, there is this kind of editable, but it's always empty. There's nothing in it. So like there's just nothing there, right? The actual content is just in memory and then mirrored back to this representation. So something like that, we have to, again, it's all about the key events, all about finding the right key events. So Google Docs thinks the user actually inserted the text themselves. You know, I'm kind of curious about how you just manage code in this thing. So this is a lot of JavaScript, it sounds like. <laughs> like, are you using any frameworks? Are you, are you writing your own frameworks? How are you managing all this code? So yeah, our code base is almost on JavaScript. We have some Python for Selenium tests, but everything else is JavaScript. So yeah, let's talk about how we manage it. So first, our, our code is split into a sort of a few separate apps. So the main ones are the Chrome extension, the actual extension itself. And then we have a separate dashboard project, which if you go to dashboard.blaze today, that's where you create your snippets, that's where you edit your snippets, modify your user settings, etc. So let's talk about the dashboard first. So that's a single page app. It's, it's a React app we use to uh, create web app. It works quite well. Technologies we use, so again, React, we use Material UI for our component library, which we're very, very happy with. We make extensive use of type annotations. So we don't use TypeScript, but we do use JSDoc type annotations. We all use a VS Code, which picks up those annotations and checks the code on the fly, which we find works very, very well to catch a whole host of errors while still keeping our code as regular JavaScript. Backend, we use Firebase and Google Cloud. So the Google Cloud storage to store image, we use Firestore as our database. And that works out really great to allow real-time collaboration between the users. Firestore has the ability to listen to events in real time on the data can, store. Can I ask you a quick question? Sure. Is your Firebase getting too expensive yet? Not yet. We are just coming out of the startup credits they offered. So we're going to be paying our, our first bill in a few months. It's not too high right now, but definitely there is some component of lock-in. And what are your thoughts on that? So Firebase, I love Firebase. I think they basically built, I don't want to pick favorites here, but the coolest platform as a service right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's maybe an overgeneralization. What they've built is, is like Heroku if it was owned by Google. That's what they've evolved it to. And so they've really managed it intelligently and moved into all these really interesting, mm -hmm. you know, adjacencies. Like Firebase hosting is really good. You know, all the kind of different sugary little high-level services they have are nice. It's just a great high-level cloud and a place to build. The only thing that concerns me about it is their pricing controls effectively. And from what I've seen some Firebase bills, I've seen some very high Firebase bills from things that look like if they were on less sugary infrastructure 
would be like, you know, a third of the cost or something. I could be wrong. I'm not 100% sure of this, so, so I don't want to like criticize Firebase. I just, yeah. So, I, I mean, very big fan of Firebase is what I'll say. You definitely have to understand the, the pricing model and to some extent you have to build your app around it or, or not build your app on Firebase if, if your app doesn't meet the pricing model, which of course is restricting. So as an example of that, we were exploring um, adding a, a commenting feature to TextPlace, allowing users to comment on their snippets. Again, collaboration, allow them to add comment, discuss the snippets, add suggestions, all of that uh, amongst the team. And... That was a feature where we had to spend a lot of time and sort of thinking, like, how do we stick within, in this case, Firestore? How do we really sort of stick within the Firestore limits? Because Firestore is an awesome database. It has that real-time syncing. It's really cool. It can do a fair amount of stuff, but can't do any joins. Like, no joins at all. Completely hopeless if you want to do joins. And there's some other limits to it. And also the pricing model, you're built on document reads or writes. So reads are very expensive, even if you have if you have a very small document. So we spent a lot of time sort of thinking how we're going to build that feature and sort of in some ways building almost around the capabilities of Firestore. So yeah, to your point, like it's fantastic, but it is limiting. And you really have to be conscious of sort of the tech and the pricing model if you sort of use this managed platform. And ignoring costs for a moment what are the advantages of building on firebase i don't want to be a shill so i actually please please be a shill even though you worked at google cloud because you're a very non-shilly kind of guy so i so you're you're the best shill well so you you get huge sort of rapid development rapid prototyping like it is like if you're going to prototype something like build it on firebase like they're, they're very few better technologies to do it. Like you can move incredibly fast as sort of you're experimenting and you're ringing up. They have an auth product that will handle user authentication, user account signup, password resets, all of that for you. Firestore we've talked about, like it's this great sort of NoSQL document type database that lets you easily store data, query data, etc. Firebase storage is sort of a front end on Google Cloud storage, but with this nice friendly API. And a lot of these services they, like Firestore, Google Cloud Storage, they have this, um, what they call rules, uh, Firestore rules, that basically allow you to do declarative access control. So you can sort of, you basically define this file, it looks kind of like JSON, but it's not all JSON, where you define sort of the access rules for your various resources, and then they manage all the access for you. So you, you're just building your front end app, you're defining some back end rules, and then you don't need to have a server at all for most of the stuff you're doing because the Firestore database is collecting directly from your client app. The rules are validating whether the with auth is validating whether the user should have access to that resource. And it's just so clean, it's so simple, it's so easy to do. And that's fantastic. You mentioned hosting, we use that too. They have cloud function, Firebase functions, which are a layer on top of Google Cloud functions that provide some additional sort of ease of use, sort of more declarative ways to defining functions. So it's just an incredible platform to start building your app. Another big benefit of it is part of Google. So as I was going through this, I mentioned Firebase functions is actually cloud functions. Firebase storage is actually Google Cloud storage with some additional services. So you have all of Google Cloud services also very cleanly integrated with your apps, with your data, et cetera. So for instance, we make heavy use of BigQuery. Like BigQuery is, just, in my opinion, like one of the best Google Cloud technologies. It's really amazing. So we make heavy use of BigQuery to analyze our data and, and run various services. And there are other parts of Google Cloud that we can pull in once as we move sort of beyond Firebase in places. I actually didn't know about that. So there's you got good integration between Firebase and BigQuery? So no, not not Firestore. Unfortunately, it's not that great. The direct integration, it's okay. 
that's not great. Basically, what you can do is you can do a easily export from Firestore and then import to BigQuery. But there's no sort of federated or real-time query of Firestore from within BigQuery. Hopefully, they'll add that in the future, but that's not available right now. So you did work at Google Cloud for a couple years. Yes. I'd like to hear about that. So Google Cloud is probably underrated, you know, kind of has a second mover advantage after, or maybe third mover advantage, you could even say, because they got in, really got into the game, I guess, like kind of behind Azure. What are the selling points of Google Cloud when you pit it against Azure and AWS as an ecosystem? So full disclosure, I've used AWS a little bit, but I haven't used it too much. So like I've never used Azure. So I don't really want to be like, well, Google can't do this and AWS can't because I frankly don't know if that's true. I really like Google Cloud because I, I think the services are relatively simple, but they're well-developed. They, they do one thing. I, I just think it's, when I look at AWS, I'm like, so many services and some of them are so narrowly targeted at little things. Like Google Cloud, they have like PubSub and they have Google Cloud Storage and they have BigQuery and, and these services just work. They work together. It's clean. In my mind, it's simple and, and easy to use. So I'm a big fan of using it. But again, like I can't really give you a comparison uh, with AWS or Azure because I, I don't have the expertise and I don't want to misspeak about them. And so have you gotten to a point where, I guess you, you already mentioned BigQuery. Are there any other components of Google Cloud that you've needed to expand beyond Firebase to? Absolutely. Again, BigQuery is fantastic. We use it extensively. We use Google Cloud Tasks for task queues for parts of our operations. We make extensive use of the monitoring, auditing, logging services, part of Google Cloud. We're exploring using something like data loss protection for a client to scan their snippet automatically to make sure they're not including any sensitive information. There's a lot of services we're using in Google Cloud. Just think off the top of my head. I could actually pull up. No, not going to do that right now. But yeah, there's this whole depth once you're ready to move Firebase. And again, BigQuery is the star in my mind. But there's this whole depth of additional things that integrate with your services. So for example, data loss prevention, like that can scan a Google Cloud storage bucket. And since your Firebase storage bucket is just a Google Cloud storage bucket in the back end, like it integrates cleanly and simply. I'm happy again, slightly biased, but I think it's a very great platform. Sorry, we were talking about the tech of the app. <laughs> Go back. I'm happy to talk about Google yeah, Cloud yeah. as much as, much as you want. I was very curious about the infrastructure. Okay, we can pop out a little bit and come back to... Okay, so we talked about kind of the code management. Yeah, so there, there's a couple I wanted to talk about that beyond that. Is that okay on the code app? We talked a bit about the dashboard, but I also want to touch on the extension because the needs of the extension are very different. This is the Chrome extension itself. Yes, the Chrome extension itself. Which, for people who don't know, the runtime is like a sandbox JavaScript environment, right? Yes. So basically the extension, you can think of it two parts, what's called the, the background script and what's called the content script. So the background script is sort of a persistent off-screen page. So it's a page that's persistent, that's sort of the app of the extension, where you can do anything a web page can, but the user never sees it. So it's where you can store your data or, or maintain persistent event, whatever you want, timers and anything like that. And then there's a content script and a content script is what's injected into each and every page. And it allows you to respond to user actions is what actually does the insertion of the snippet text into the page. So you have these two components. So I think a key part of extension development is you wanna make that content script as small and as light as possible. 
because it's going to be injected into every single page. So like we make extensive use of NPM, we actually use Yarn, but we install a lot of node packages, et cetera, it works great. We're sometimes not as sensitive enough to sort of bundle size as we should be, right? Because it's so easy to install a package and then get a great feature for user, but it has an impact on the bundle size. And again, that's not great, but, but it's okay. Like it's not the end of the world. People are on their powerful laptops loading the dashboard and the snippets. But in the content script, because you're injecting every page, like a large bundle size would have a huge impact on sort of browser performance. So in the content script, like that is a single file, completely handwritten, not a single third-party dependency pulled in via NPM. I think we have one or two third-party dependencies, but we just version directly in the code rather than using a package manager to make as small a package size as we want. So that's sort of a key thing into developing performance extensions is really like optimizing the content script size-wise, but also if you're like adding an event listener or anything like that, having as little as possible there so you don't impact the underlying pages because it's going to be copied across every single tab the user has. And can you talk about the kind of dynamics of the usage? So for example, if I'm a power user of TextBlaze and I define some templates, I've got some customization, take me through what is going on as I am in my day-to-day workflow, like is TextBlaze sort of like scraping the screen? Does it have some event listener thing that's like figuring out what I'm doing? Just give me a sense of, of what the runtime is doing. Yeah, so obviously you define these shortcuts and then you type them in. We have other ways of entering snippets, but if you forget them, but the, the shortcut is the main one in the preferred way because it's the most efficient. So to do that, we have a couple of event listeners that are listening for keystrokes. And we keep a short buffer of your most recent keystrokes. You can customize how long that is but it's on the order of a few seconds. If you type a character that's invalid in a snippet shortcut, like a space, we clear that buffer. If you change the focus or you click somewhere, we clear the buffer. But it's a very short temporary buffer of your recent keystrokes. We then match that locally. So everything's happening locally on your computer. None of this is happening in the cloud. We then match that against the list of your snippets, which we've downloaded via Firestore, and see if any of those snippets should trigger. If one of them matches, we then go through and we talked earlier about how we do insertion, but we basically bleed out that shortcut and we insert the content of the snippet into the page itself. Again, all this locally, we never, we're not sending what you type off your computer. If you're using our forms product, again, that's happening locally on your computer. What you're typing in there is all purely local. So obviously, Privacy, security, super important. This a tool like this it does have a high level of access. It needs a high level of access to work correctly, but we want to make sure we operate as secure and private as we can for the user. What's the hardest engineering problem that you've had to solve thus far? I talked about the editor stuff. Again, that sounds simple. It's actually super, super hard. Things keep popping up with it. So I would say that's the hardest. Other than that, again, just sort of compatibility overall across sites making sure we have no impact is very significant. Yes, this is hard. This is a hard problem, but it's a hard problem we have full control over. And that's the, the problem of insert of the dynamic logic in the snippets, like the formulas, the if statements, etc. So the editor problem is a very hard problem that we don't have full control over, right? Because any site might decide to do something absolutely crazy if they're editor. But sort of making the snippets dynamic is something we do have control over. So let's talk a little bit about that. So Again, I mentioned you can write formulas, you, you can create these if statements, you can create this dynamic logic, so your snippet is highly dynamic. How that works is basically on a formula level, we have a custom parser we wrote using a software called Nearly that, that's very good. So we have this 
formula evaluator that, that supports mathematical operations, it supports functions, it supports strings, it has a whole, whole variety of capabilities. So when you run your snippet, we go through, we find any dynamic content in it, like formulas, we evaluate those. And you can also define temporary variables, so you can assign a formula to a variable. So we just go through and evaluate everything. Part of that too, since you have these variables, it's actually, your snippet is less like a program. I'm going to go back to it, more like Excel, right? In the standard programming, right, you start at the top and you just go down the line. Maybe you have some control flow where you loop over, but it's sort of one directional just through the program. In Excel, right, it's more of a graph, right? Where you can have this cell depends on that cell, which depends on that cell, which then depends on that cell. And you can have this sort of complex set of references. It's the same thing in a snippet, right? Where you don't evaluate the snippet from top to bottom. It could happen in any order. You may have the definition of a, a form field at the very bottom that's used higher up in the snippet. So as we evaluate these formulas, we actually have to map out the graph between the different dependencies in the snippet, then evaluate that whole graph as we go along. As we do that, like you can actually hide and show sections. Again, I mentioned you have these if statements. So when you evaluate one variable, that may show a additional part of the snippet, which may define some additional variables, or it may hide a part of the snippet that will remove variables. So it's snippet evaluation is actually fairly complex. Again, it's something we have full control over. There's not crazy sites with crazy compatibility issues doing very interesting things, but it is a very difficult problem to execute. At the end of the day, I find it super interesting. It's super rewarding. You can create these super powerful little snippets where you can do a lot of logic in them. That makes sense. I felt like sort of the, describing that graph was very unclear. I understood it. I hear what you're saying. Okay, great. Are there any, like, do you run into a lot of performance bottlenecks when you're trying to make this Chrome extension work performantly and make make it do like what you need to do on the user's browser? Absolutely. So performance is a huge issue. When you're typing and you type a shortcut, the snippet should insert instantly. Like it should be instant. If the snippet takes a tenth of a second, like that's too long. If it takes two tenths of a second, like you're for sure going to notice that and be like, maybe you're going to even type beyond it in that time. Like... Like really we want the snippet to sort of insert in like maybe 50 milliseconds or less. So it feels like, hey, I, I typed slash return and bam, I have my new text there. So there, there's a lot going on there, like to make that work that that can, and we really want to make it feel fast. So the content script is the one that is, hey, checking, maintaining the buffer, the shortcut buffer, but then it has to communicate with the background script, which is maintaining the list of actual snippets. The background snippet has to run through the snippets. We insert often via copying and pasting because that's a very compatible way to insert text because most editors will handle copying and pasting very smoothly. So we have to load the snippet content in the clipboard, paste it in. If there's any dynamic stuff, like we just talked about going on, we have to evaluate all that dynamic stuff. So there's a lot going on. So we've done a fair amount of work profiling different parts of the app, making sure they're fast, moving on to another part of the app, profiling that. So there is a lot that goes into it. Yeah, it's just never ending though, right? Because as you add more features, of course, that can have a negative impact on performance. So it's always sort of, hey, this is now optimized, but what about this? Could we optimize this more? And the answer is yes, there's always more to optimize and improve. Okay, and zooming out, what does the business look like? What's the kind of revenue profile, trajectory, you know, sales strategy? Give me the business perspective. Sure, so we... 
took a, our, our first funding a few months ago. That, that's super exciting. So we're ramping up the team right now. Revenue is, I don't know if I can give you a number, but it's solid. It's, it's growing steadily. The sort of business is really about sort of improving the product, making it better, expanding the product to additional sort of screens and use cases, and then also really like seeing how we can build on top of this product. So right now we're Chrome extension. We like to be everywhere the user is, right? Right now, hey, use Chrome, great, we're there. But on your Android or your iPhone, like we're not there, right? Which can be problematic. So like one of our top user requests is, hey, make an iPhone or Android or, or a native Mac or, or native Windows version. So that's something we're exploring doing, we want to do. Obviously, there's going to be a huge cost of that, not in terms of initial development, but in terms of maintenance and like now we have to sync up releases between the Chrome and the Android and the iOS. So there's going to be a huge sort of long-term sort of tax or friction on development once we make that switch. But at some point, we think we need to branch out to additional platforms. In terms of sort of expanding to additional use cases, we think there's sort of huge opportunity to use sort of what we've developed for sort of additional types of workflows that, that our users have. For example, the last survey, the last user survey we sent out to our users, we actually implemented as a text-based snippet. We took our text-based technology, we put it as a hosted website, and then we just sent it out to users. So they came to this website. It was a interactive form where they could fill in things and they selected things. We revealed or showed different questions and that was implemented as a snippet, right? Our snippet sort of dynamic is so powerful. Like you can create these really interactive experiences. So we're like, Hey, maybe this could be useful as sort of like either a form solution or a low code, no code type app builder solution. So we have a bunch of real estate users, like maybe they could build like a mortgage calculator and host it internally or internally via the snippet technology. So that the stuff like that, I think we're interested in, like we have this great technology. We have these users who really love the product. Can we sort of build off that or expand into, and not do things just for the sake of doing it, but like expand into things that really are either technologically or sort of workflow are very adjacent to what we're doing now. So that's something we're very interested in. We're exploring, testing out, et cetera. All right. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Anything else you want to add about the business or the technology? No, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Jeff. I, like, I think we covered a lot. If I may say, we are hiring, so we're looking for fantastic talent. We're fully remote. If anyone wants to join, please reach out to me, scott at blaze.today. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Scott. Thank you.